Get to Old Navy now for February's biggest style steal. 40% off all jeans and tees. Jeans start at just 18 bucks for adults, 12 bucks for kids. With tees from just 7 bucks for adults, 6 bucks for kids. All jeans and tees are on sale, even your favorite rock star jeans. All jeans and all tees are 40% off right now. Don't miss out. Run into Old Navy and OldNavy.com today. Valid 211 to 221 excludes in-store clearance jeans and tees. Active licensed and men's package tees. Today's sales leaders face a difficult task, selling the right products at the right time through the right channels. A new three-day program from Harvard Business School Executive Education addresses this problem directly. Join us on the Boston campus in August for Managing Sales Teams and Distribution Channels, where you will discover strategies that can lead to the best sales performance. Learn more by clicking the banner or visiting hbs.me sales. That's hbs.me slash sales. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. When I had come down this hill, I had seen this creature cross the road. ripped my locked door from my truck, extracted me from my vehicle, and there wasn't a damn thing I could have done about it. This thing, I got to notice in its eyes. Its eyes was real, real evil, real sinister looking. You know, the look it was giving me. Sasquatch Chronicles, a place where people share their encounters. Let's start the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for being here tonight want to give a quick shout out to everyone out there who sent me all of the nice feedback on Friday's show. I had Rocky Elmore on, and he is the retired Border Patrol agent uh, who was speaking out, kind of sharing some of the different Sasquatch stories, sharing some of the weird stories uh, that happened to the men and women of the Border Patrol. Uh, if you haven't heard that show, definitely go back and listen. Great show, and I want to thank Rocky again for being on. Tonight's going to be a little bit different than what you normally hear. I try to keep the show on topic with the Sasquatch topic and have people on who share their encounters, talk about what they've experienced, and give people a platform to come forward and, and talk about some of the different things that, that have happened to them. Uh, every once in a while, I'll go off topic a little bit. If you go back and listen to episode 112, uh, The Nephilim Conspiracy... 
Originally, I had Gary on the show because there's a lot of people out there uh, who do believe in Sasquatch, believe it exists, but they feel like it's the Nephilim. I've heard it more than once from many, many researchers. Uh, And behind the scenes, they won't say it publicly, but behind the scenes, they'll tell you they think these things are the Nephilim. So originally, I brought Gary to the show and wanted to just talk about the Nephilim. Just kind of go through and give a description of what they were. And I learned a lot through that show. I hope the people who are into this topic walked away with some information that maybe they didn't have before. And if you get a chance, definitely pick up Gary's book. There's something for everyone in the book, uh, but it all ties together. It all He brings it all full circle. And the book, again, is called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy by Gary Wayne. I wanted to bring Gary back because I had additional questions for him uh, regarding the book. And tonight we're going to mainly talk about secret societies, pre-flood secret societies today, why there are secret societies, and just kind of talk about some of the different things in his book. And I really should have done it sooner. I didn't realize, I think, what am I on? Episode 142, 143. Uh, And looking back, I was like, man, was it that far back? I did the show on episode 112 about the Nephilim. I feel like it was just a couple weeks ago I did the show. And so I apologize for the late part two to the Nephilim conspiracy. Again, in part one, uh, episode 112, you know, I think we covered what the Nephilim were, what they looked like, the viper face, the giants. As you read through Gary's book, he starts to talk about, starting with Cain, he starts talking about uh, these secret societies and how they came about. You know, we have many different secret societies today, and it makes you wonder what knowledge do they have? How did they come about? And so we'll really get into that tonight. Gary, I absolutely love the book. I've actually read the book twice. I'm not a guy that'll just sit down and, and read a book from cover to cover, but I've done it twice with your book. And again, I absolutely love it. It's a story within a story, and you do a great job explaining every portion of the story, you know, coming from the Nephilim to knowledge that was given, these secret societies that were created. Uh, I absolutely love it. So thank you again, Gary, for being on tonight. Well, thank you. And I'm glad to be back. And, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to do when I wrote the book was, is not write such a fine sort of narrow look at the giant, but look at the total implications and tell the whole story as best as I could uh, without making it too long of a book. But, you know, it is a large book, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, connecting the dots and showing people how all of this is is sort of one story that flows through right, right to our time and into the future. That's really what the book does. You know, this is normally a Bigfoot show, a Sasquatch show. And one of the reasons I originally had you on the show, and, and for people out there listening, if you go back and listen to episode 112, that's when uh, I had Gary on and, and him and I really went in depth about the Nephilim. You know, a lot of researchers I talked to, a lot of people out there, Gary, I'll ask him, you know, while we're out, kind of behind the scenes, no one will really say it publicly, but a lot of well-known people in the, I guess, Bigfoot world, uh, they believe that Sasquatch is a Nephilim. Now, I've always felt that not to be the case because I've ha- talked to so many people with different encounters. A lot of the encounters are very mundane. 
type encounters, and it seems to be more with a wild animal. But you do get a lot of weird things. I was just talking to a guy the other day, and it made me think of you and, and what we were talking about with the Nephilim. He said he was out on his property, and he came across this giant. Now, basically, it was just an outline. He couldn't really see any details, but he said it had glowing red eyes. And I asked him, I said, like eye shine? Were you shining a light at it? Or he said, no, it had glowing red eyes, uh, like it had an internal light source. You know, what this guy saw, we could talk about all day, but it, I mean, it, we had very varying opinions on what this guy saw. But what was interesting, one of the things I thought of when he was talking about the glowing red eyes, you know, you and I talked about the Nephilim, uh, and we talked about their different features, but one of the things you brought up was their fathers being called the Shining Ones, the Fallen Angels being called the Shining Ones, and the Nephilim eyes glowed. Not really connecting the dots here, I just immediately made me think of that when you and I first talked. Well, and I would make up maybe a couple other connections on on that sighting as well. Again, um, not familiar with uh, Bigfoot and glowing eyes or, or things like that, but you have to understand that in prehistory, and if, particularly if you look at Greek history, it probably gives the best accounts of other beings being created, uh, whether or not they're the centaurs or all these other very, very strange animals that may have been created with DNA uh, manipulation or uh, other sort of copulations, however these things were manifested. And if you bring into the fact as well, just sort of connect in that... Uh, the giants of prehistory were also very hairy uh, and very rough skin. So there's a description that is reasonably close to being large, hairy, rough skinned. Uh, and they also were known to live in, in, in caves when they were hiding. So there, there are some references there. And also in the book, I talk about watch and look for all the entertainment and literature that you that you read today and see today, whether it's movies or in this uh, alien mythos and with Star Wars in particular, where I'm going with this possible references is they actually continue to record these types of beings in this type of entertainment. And so if you look at Star Wars and Star Wars is, you know, uh, fresh in everybody's minds with the with the new series coming out, I think starting in November, there's a very interesting character in Star Wars, Star Wars called Chewbacca, if I've got the name correct. And uh, I believe in this new series, he's going to be actually estimated as 200 years old. He's large, lives for long ages, and is very hairy. I don't look at any of that as coincidence. And so I think there's similarities between the Nephilim and beings that were created in prehistory. And there are lots of things to investigate on that to suggest that there is a relationship there. I, I certainly haven't uh, gone down that road to to make those connections with with Bigfoot. But again, when you have Bigfoot, uh, you know, sightings on every continent on Earth, and it goes right back into history, it's it's one of those things that again is a parallel story almost to the Nephilim uh, between the mythos how long it's been around, the size of them, and the total mysteriousness of, of the Bigfoot. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. One of the things, though, that's different, I think, from the Nephilim and Bigfoot, there are a lot of similarities. But one of the major differences is, as you and I talked in the, in the first episode, 
talking about some of the different appearances of the Nephilim being Viper-like in the face and going back to, uh, what was it, the Seraphim angel, and that's mm-hmm. what the, that angel looked like, and so hence that's what his sons would look like. But one of the things that is interesting about Sasquatch and the Nephilim, the Nephilim were more or less like rulers of the world. Yes. Uh, they were very powerful beings. And, but what's weird about Sasquatch is it seems to be very animalistic, very animal-like, kind of like a gorilla or a bear out running around. People have encounters with them, but the type of encounters that you hear from, I would say 90% of encounters, are nothing more than it was eating or they caught it off guard or it was drinking water or it was crossing the road. You know, very animalistic type behaviors. Yeah, completely sort of different behavior and seemingly capability factor, not to dismiss that Sasquatch may not have some intelligence, but these Nephilim grew to be the rulers of the, of the ancient world. I know in episode 112, we talked about their appearance, uh, being heroes of old, men of renown. We talked about what the world was like pre-flood. We talked about some of the technology that they had. And then we got into the royal bloodlines. And we really didn't go too far into, there's so much information on it, we didn't have time to really go into the royal bloodlines. One of the things I wanted to do, and this is going to be a little bit of a conspiracy, not necessarily a Genesis 6 conspiracy, just a West Germer conspiracy. Hmm. We talked about the different families in power. And I want to start off with the Rothschild family. And then maybe have you, Gary, back up. We'll talk about the Illuminati. We'll talk about uh, the Knights Templar and some of the families that are actually in power in this world. But what I thought was interesting was with the Rothschild family, they're the wealthiest family on the earth. Uh, I think their estimated worth is about $100 trillion. Uh, And what's interesting is the central bank is owned and controlled by the Rothschild family. They run the central bank uh, in every country in the world. But what was very, very interesting as I was reading through your book and I was doing some outside research, there were back in 2000, there were seven countries that the Rothschild family didn't have control over the central bank. The seven countries were North Korea, Iran, Cuba, Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan, and Libya. And so how did the Rothschild family gain financial control over those countries? And we know back in 2001, there was 9-11, and we went into Afghanistan and Iraq. The Rothschild family actually gained control over those two countries' central bank. So it makes you wonder a little bit. You hope the U.S. wasn't a puppet. I guess with unlimited money and power, uh, you can manipulate anyone into doing anything that you want. Uh, but what was interesting is is they wanted control over Afghanistan and Iraq first. And being more of a, a religious country, they had to invade, uh, which is a horrible excuse to go to war uh, if that's the case. But in 2003, Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, central banks are now under control of the Rothschild family. In 2011, through the UN, control over the central banks of Sudan and Libya uh, fell into the hands of the Rothschild family. 
And so what's interesting is the last targets, if you're looking at this list, would be North Korea, Iran, and Cuba. And in 2014, the United States changed its policy on Cuba. So instead of using force, they're trying to, I guess, befriend these countries. Uh, the Rothschild family wants control over. And they were able to get control over that central bank uh, in Cuba. The, the other interesting part is what you see going on right now with Iran, how we're trying to bef befriend Iran, which seems crazy when you think about it, uh, how we, the nuclear deal that Obama did, and I don't want to get too much into the politics, but what's interesting though is that they're trying to be befriend Iran. And I thought something was going to happen with North Korea. Uh, with all the cyber attacks they were getting blamed for. But when you really start digging into this, and I recommend to the audience to go out there and do their own research, when you really start digging into this, it's pretty disturbing. But we talk a little bit about the Rothschild family, and then we kind of, maybe it's easier to back up and sure. then come to the Rothschild family. Well, I like that introduction because, you know, in, in almost everything in, in, in the world, you know, I have to look at it from two perspectives. Is one is follow the power, and two is follow... Uh, the money. And if you notice, a lot of those countries that um, uh, the banking systems weren't cooperating, they were Muslim countries. And of course, they have a whole different perspective on lending money and not charging interest and how that whole thing works. And so they held out for a long period of time based on the religious fervor, but the march continues. And they find a way to overthrow countries, seize power, get a hold of the money system. And so now we're down to Iran and we're down to uh, North Korea. Well, I don't know whether they're all that concerned about North Korea, but certainly Iran, um, you know, is one that they're going to find a way to get a hold of. So I would look for uh, this treaty as probably the start of how they're going to plan an insurgency in there. But that's just my speculation. But those are the classic examples of of uh, the power of the Rothschilds. And you have to remember that the Rothschilds aren't at the apex. Um, and I go into the book about the Rothschilds and they actually came into um, this whole secret societies as uh, probably had some of the noble bloodlines uh, being German. The original names were Bauer, but they didn't become rich and famous until they attached themselves to the Freemasonry organizations and the bloodlines and became the banking arm to re replace the Templars. And so the Rothschilds over the last, let's say, um, 300 and some odd years have been the banking arm to this conspiracy. And they literally uh, partner with uh, and bring into the fold uh, other families uh, and other people as as they require. And if you look at North America and the U.S. in particular, uh, they use these families as stables, uh, stables of agents over here. And the best-known names of those people who were funded by the Rockefellers were people like the, or I'm sorry, funded by the Rothschilds were the Rockefellers, and the J.P. Morgans, and pretty much any other famous uh, name of wealth in history, whether it was Carnegie or you can go literally go on and on and on. They funded them. And they funded them to create the United States as the model for world government. 
the model of the new Atlantis that they want to bring about in that people talk about as uh, the new age of Aquarius um, or the evolving into the, the next level of evolution. And in Christianity, we would know that as the end time. And so you can see that there are two distinct sort of things playing out. There is, is the polytheist uh, side of the belief system and the monotheist side that are all talking about the same things. They just have different perspectives of what's going on. And so the Rothschilds are people that play a very, very integral role, but are, again, as I mentioned earlier, are not at the apex of, of power, although most people think they are. If you see the visibility of these people, as in this case, the Rothschilds, that means they want you to see them. It's the other families that you need to be concerned about. Yeah, the ones that you don't see. And the reason why I bring that up, and it's and it's covered in the book, going back to the beginning when we talked about the secret society conspiracy, uh, starting with Cain and kind of going down the line, and you see it with all of these. I mean, it's just it blows me it blows me away when I read some of this stuff. And you look at, like you said, follow the money, follow the power. It's kind of moving towards, I would imagine they're taking control of all of those banking systems as a way to possibly move to like a one world type government. I mean, if all the money is yeah. sitting in the same pot, it makes it that much easier. Correct. And so you have to look at the Rothschilds as the banking arm to the conspiracy. And if you look at uh, an organization uh, that was around before the Rothschilds and their banking organizations, it, well, there's an organization that everybody's familiar with called the Knights Templar. And so in about 1308, uh, and I believe the date was Friday the 13th, uh, they were disassembled, but their wealth uh, and many of their secrets were, were, were never found. But this was a very, very powerful organization that we'll talk a little bit more about probably as we peel this onion back. But after that downfall, what the Knights Templars had created had to be replaced. And so banking was a key part of what the Templars did. The Templars actually invented our modern banking system. Credit facilities, lending money, uh, reasonable interest rates, funding wars, uh, trade and commerce, uh, being able to move uh, money without actually using physical money, so bank notes. And so that had to be replaced. Other aspects that needed to be replaced by the Templar arm were the religious aspect, uh, which went underground. And we know that as Gnosticism. And uh, it also is uh, resurfaced in the 1800s known as Theosophy and uh, is now sort of the common name is New Age. And that's all of that is just an Eastern religion. The other part that had to be uh, replaced was the political arm. And that is where they created the, the knights that went over to Scotland uh, with the Sinclair family, founded Freemasonry to replace the, the political arm. The political arm that works in pretty much all governments, most people are, are Freemasons or of a higher uh, hierarchy on these secret societies. So you've got uh, basically three aspects to the conspiracy uh, besides the bloodlines. You've got the banking arm, you've got the political arm, and you've also got the religious arm. And they all work hand in hand. 
Yeah, and you talk about that in the section, The Bloodlines of the Grail. You want to talk a little bit more about the Sinclairs? I found the Sinclair family very, very fascinating and kind of how they came about. And then I guess a, I guess the Rothschilds would replace, I don't know if they would replace them or not. No, they would report to them. Uh, the, the Rothschilds are not uh, as ennobled. They do claim uh, bloodlines back to the Essenes. And there's, again, there's two aspects to this whole thing. You've got the 6,000 year history of the, of the, the bloodlines of the Nephilim. And then you have this other aspect that comes in at the crucifixion, crucifixion of Christ, uh, where the other belief system believes that Jesus survived the blood or survived the cross and uh, had a family and had children. And these descendants married into these Nephilim bloodlines. And so uh, the Essenes are a very major player in the last 2000 years, also known as the princes of Jerusalem. And they link their descendancy back into King David uh, and through Moses and uh they received their knowledge and religion through the Great White Brotherhood of Heliopolis. And again, I'll, I'll explain all of that through the book. But getting back to the Sinclairs and, 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 and the Rothschilds, understand is that the Sinclairs would be a, a very, very significant uh, and noble bloodline. Uh, one of the 13 families uh, of Europe that uh, you, people really need to pay attention to. And so the Sinclairs, that actually wasn't their real name. Um, it's a name that was changed, and uh, in French it was called the St. Clairs. And the Sinclairs, although they're from Scotland um, today as we know them in founding the Freemasonry, they actually date back to Rollo of uh, Norway and the Vikings and are part of the Viking royal bloodline. And, of course, the Viking bloodlines are represented in uh, King Arthur's table with Gawain, and uh, as one of the kings of this round table of ring lords, because uh, it's an allegory, uh, a recreation of the ancient uh, ring lord traditions in Sumeria of the Anunnaki. You'll know, you'll see that in the Tolkien movies and and literature. And so, when Rollo moved back, invaded uh, Normandy, they did a treaty called. Uh, Sir de St. Clair, as I, as I recall it, I'd have to look it up. Um, and so they adopted that name at that time as the St. Clairs. The St. Clairs then married into, from Normandy as well, additional bloodlines that were already in France. And that's where this whole thing sort of centers around. It is in the French region of uh, southwest France, very close to Spain, um, in uh, in a couple areas. One people might remember as Septimania, which was for a very long period of time not under French rule. And so the Sinclairs were part of the original family, one of the 13 families as their records recall and 11 families as standard history recalls that founded the Knights Templar. Where did the Freemasons fall into this? So after the fall of the Templars, uh, many of the uh, surviving Templars went to Scotland and they received from uh, King Bruce of Scotland uh, security there so that they were protected from the Catholic Inquisition on them. And at that time, Bruce was not recognized as a legitimate king of Rome. And so it was a perfect place for them to go. 
And from there, they wanted to reorganize, and they knew they couldn't call themselves Templars. And so the Sinclairs were the grandmasters and the founders of this new new society, and they were called Frank Masons, and you can translate that several ways, which uh, one is uh, French Masons, and one would be Freemasons in the translation, and obviously they took uh, the Freemason translation to England when they moved there. The higher Templars be- uh, became part of the Rosicrucian order, which had also started a little earlier as well, but both of those worked actively to bring about a Freemasonry and its expansion first to England and then to France and then the rest of the world. And of course, uh, France and the United States were the two big springboards to uh, take Freemasonry uh, to a level of power and influence. And the United Kingdom's empire was the perfect empire to get control of to export this society all around the world. You know, it's interesting as we talk about the secret societies in the book, going back to, as everyone knows, Cain and Abel, uh, Adam and Eve's sons, all of this really started with Cain. And there was a lot written about Cain, more than I realized, you know, because I've read the Bible, and Cain's very limited in his appearances in the Bible. You know, God's not happy with his offerings. Next thing I know, he's not happy with his brother, kills his brother, goes, you know, he's kind of a wise ass in front of God and says, you know, what, you know, he asks, where's Abel, where's your brother? And, you know, he says, it's, hey, what am I his keeper? And so he gets sent off. And what's interesting is that's kind of the last you hear about Cain is from a biblical perspective. But if you read these other, especially within your book and the sources that you cite and the information that you give, all of this began with Cain. As you read the book, it's the same story over and over and over and over again, going from the world getting to, to a, a, a bad point being destroyed, these secret societies being created with Cain. Now we're talking about the Rothschilds. We're talking about the Sinclairs. Uh, we're talking about how money's being controlled in the world. And it's interesting because there's not really a huge difference between back then and today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most people are not aware of, and again, uh, let's bring in this Freemasonry organization. And it wasn't, it was known as the Masonic organizations of, of history and Freemasonry sort of the latter sort of attachment to the name, but it was a Masonic organization. And this organization began with Cain and Enoch and with them re- uh, learning the seven sacred sciences. From these seven sacred sciences, they turned, they mixed a religion that was different than monotheism of Adam at that time into this powerful, powerful knowledge, knowledge that they still have today, knowledge that they say would actually destroy the world, and which is why they need to keep it uh, secret, but knowledge that has unbelievable technology to help advance man. And, and so it's one of the reasons why they control the sciences is they keep doling this information out a piece at a time to advance our society. And we're seeing more and more of that as we, as we progress here. But this society also introduced religion and intermixed it into initiation and secrecy to keep it away from the mundane masses and to the bloodlines and the people that they would want to, to invite in. And so this was the beginning of Freemasonry. It's all recorded in their legends. And there's some very interesting writers from within Freemasonry. And one I like to use in the book, Albert Mackey, 
actually wrote in the 1800s, and he was a grand master and uh, one of those very famous patriarchs within the craft. And he put all of these legends into uh, the book called The uh, History of Freemasonry, and it talks so much about all of this prehistory and the organizations and Cain and Tubal Cain and Enoch. And so Enoch becomes this super patriarch. And there, you have to remember in the Bible that there are two Enochs. And that's really, really important because as we look at the books of Enoch that are resurfacing through the Nag Hammadi Library and other Gnostic sources, we have to be able to understand the difference between the Enoch from the descendants of Seth and Enoch, son of Cain. And they're two different people and two different belief systems. And so Enoch really develops this, this whole society. Uh, secret society, and actually most people, including uh, the secret societies, believe out of that organization they built the pyramids and all these other great wonders that you see around the world. Not including the cities, though, that are older than this date, because uh, in in prehistory it's the gods that built the great cities about 10,000 BCE or before. And so this is the organization of Enoch and Cain and Tubal Cain that mixes with polytheism, that mixes with the descendants of Cain, that creates the Nephilim with the fallen angels and creates this huge society, powerful society, technological society, and, of course, corrupt and violent society in prehistory that is wiped out by the first apocalypse. But what happens is, is, Everything is not lost. Uh, the information is, is recorded and stored in vaults, and directions are put on a couple of stellas. And there are actually survivors, and I'll document that in my book from the flood. And I'll actually actually document that biblically for the Christians that may be, may be listening. You'd be surprised at how many races survived and how many types of giants survived. But this now partners at Babel, and Babel becomes the first Masonic execution of this knowledge after the flood, building this ziggurat uh, for Nimrod. And Nimrod becomes the first antichrist figure of the post-Diluvian world, the first king of everybody, uh, of the the known people, at least from a biblical perspective at that time. And he partners with a fellow called Hermes who translates these hieroglyphs in cuneiform from prehistory, and they start this all over. And of course, all of this now brings context to Babel and what happens after that with the dis- with the dispersion. And and you, if you want to understand the power of this knowledge, just look to the Babel narrative where it says, if speaking in one language they can do this, nothing is is not is is impossible for them. And I'm I'm paraphrasing, not quoting. Right. That's literally how powerful this information is. And then Hermes goes to Egypt and Nimrod stays in, in Chaldea. And so you have what people will be familiar with, the Magi and the wise men. Well, that's the carrying on of these secret societies and religions in Babylon and Chaldea and Assyria in that whole area. And then Hermes, who gets intermixed with and the religions of Egypt, he restarts everything in Egypt, which is why he has such fame. And all of this continued to go on after after the flood. And very short after Babel, very shortly after Babel, 
the Giants are of such numbers now, um, and they also partnered with Nimrod at Mabel, at Babel, and I'll document that in the book as well, um, that they usurp all of the kingships again. And so now we have the very same things happening after the flood that happened before the flood. So we've got these very powerful giants and their descendants running the countries, running the empires, creating descendancy of royal bloods. You've got the knowledge that's being relearned and reworked and being developed and hidden in secret societies, and you have this mystical religion that's growing up. Going back to the Freemasons for a moment, you know, they have so much power and they have so many influential people that, you know, I've always wondered, what do they talk about behind closed doors? And then you start seeing like the Illuminati pop up and we could come back to this. But going back to what you were just saying, you know, with the Nimrod chapter and the Tower of Babel, I've always been fascinated with that story. And I've always been fascinated, like with Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? I mean, it's it doesn't seem any worse than San Francisco, for example. I mean, I don't think there's anything worse that they mention in the Bible that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that you don't see. And sorry for all the listeners out in San Francisco, uh, but but you know what I mean. Any major city, I don't think we're really talking yeah. about any difference yet. They were destroyed, and the chapter that you went in and talked about Sodom and Gomorrah was really, really, really fascinating. I did enjoy the Nimrod chapter, and it's just. I know people might get lost as we're talking about the Knights Templar, we're talking about the Sinclairs, we're talking about the Freemasons, but it's really no different than Nimrod's time. And like you said, there's that quote in the Bible where God says he has to confuse their languages because there's nothing they can't accomplish that they don't set their minds to. So it makes you wonder what knowledge did they have at that time that was so troublesome. Yes, and it's knowledge from prehistory. And again, in the biblical account, uh, people don't really connect. Well, why is Nimrod even around that narrative? And so I'll spend a lot of time on that. What's important about Nimrod for the modern conspiracies is he created the first post-Diluvian constitution that's still used today. It was reformed under the Armana dynasty and the Great White Brotherhood somewhere between probably, let's say, 12, uh, say 1300 to 1500 BC. But it's essentially the same platform that Nimrod and Hermes had originally built. And again, I'll connect the Great Right Brotherhood uh, into this, this mix as we walk through. But it's the same organization. It's the same descendants. It's the same religion. And they're trying to rebuild the Antiluvian Age. It's the new Aquarius. Yeah, and I think we see that coming here in the in the near future, you know, with so many weird things that are happening right now in this world. I, I honestly think we're going to see some even stranger things. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Illuminati without without yeah, so without getting Illum- me, uh, you know, without having me disappear? <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> so the Illuminati uh, is an organization that uh, started earlier than uh, Freemasonry. Uh, in its roots, uh, just a little bit before. But by the time of the American Revolution, which, again, I don't find is a coincidence, they had merged with the Freemasonry organization. And so what the Illuminati brought was one of the common beliefs that uh, Freemasonry has been trying to do, even from the beginning of their organization, is, is to form world government and a one-world religion, except that Illuminati would be more 
uh, I guess, fanatical or focused on that. And so they merged. And again, that's not coincidental that uh, these forces came together at the time of the American Revolution and and, and the French Revolution and, and played a big part in both. And so... What has happened over time is, is the Illuminati has, has become the inner circle of Freemasonry. So you have the lower levels and um, you have adepts, but there's a very small inside circle within Freemasonry. And they're called the Illuminated Adepts. And these Illuminated Adepts are people that are enlightened in all of the the doctrines of polytheism and uh, Luciferianism and they are very, very powerful, but they are still not up the ladder and as ennobled uh, as uh, others are above them. And so the best of the uh, Illuminati are drafted into an organization which is higher called the Rosicrucians. And the Rosicrucians will have many, many representatives of the uh, the ennobled bloodlines, and they'll dominate uh, this group, uh, and they'll bring in the less ennobled bloodlines and those illuminated that they want into the Rosicrucian order. So the Illuminati and the Freemasonry groups are the more visible groups that you're going to see at work today, and they're the ones, uh, you know, that uh, organize, like, the... Uh, the Skull and Bone Society to draft people into and prepare them to go into all these organizations that they they and the Freemasonry Freemasons have created, like the CFR and the Trilateral Organization, and any political movement that is moving towards uh, other countries working together. This is spawned by these groups, and they answer to the Rosicrucians, who answer to the Council of Three Hundred, who answer to the Thirteen Families. Yeah, and all of this is covered in the book if, if people are starting to get lost. But it's it's fascinating because, like I said, you give history, 6,000-year history from the beginning till basically where we're at now, and it's just disturbing to see the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know, we have the these secret societies. We have one-world government. And none, none of this is really new. Nimrod was trying to do the same thing with the Tower of Babel. He was trying to create a one-world government uh, at that time. And, and it seems like it's the same story over and over again. It is the same story. It's the same history. It's the same prehistory. It's the same agenda today. And they all talk, again, it's just a matter of perspective. Are you a monotheist or are you a polytheist if you have a belief system? Uh, and they both talk about the same things just from a different perspective. Yeah, I watched this thing the other day about this member of the Illuminati. He's a little bit higher up than the Illuminati, but what happened was is this guy went to one of their secret meetings and he filmed it, but he filmed it from a distance. And they were talking about Lucifer, they were talking about knowledge, they were talking about power, they were talking about money. It was kind of a weird, I don't know if you've seen that, Gary, I'll have to send it to you, it reminded me something of like you'd see the Aztecs doing. Mm-hmm. It was just a really weird uh, video. It was a it was a weird. Um, it's the same religion. Yeah, it was just it was disturbing. And but they had talked to this guy, but he wouldn't talk about the Illuminati. They asked him about Lucifer, mm-hmm. and he was saying uh, he he talked about dragons, he talked about serpents, but he talked about Lucifer being the good guy and was just trying to give us knowledge. Yes. trying to enlighten us 
everyone else has it wrong. And that made me stop and, and take a step back a little bit when I, when I saw this guy talking about that. Yeah. I mean, it's not that these people are, uh, I mean, I'm sure some of them are, but so many of them aren't this sort of overt evil sort of thing. They have a different belief system and their belief system is, is that Lucifer has been maligned by Christians and, the people of Israel and, uh, and and the Muslims and has been all throughout history. And he is not in, they believe that he is not inferior to God. They believe he is God's equal. And they believe in duality, that the forces of good, the forces of evil. And we've all heard this over and over and over, but this is their true belief. And the reason why we hear these things over and over and over and over about this duality is, is because they keep funding this belief system. And so they actually believe they can win. And they actually believe they are the people of light. And they actually believe that there will be a rendezvous with destiny called the end time and they will win. And that Lucifer is here to help free humankind from the enslavement that God of the Christians and my God has uh, put humanity under. So they haven't lost their minds. They just believe something different. You're right. It does come down to belief because he was very sincere. You could tell this guy believed it. I mean, he believed that Lucifer was this good guy and that everyone else kind of has it wrong. It just blows me away when you read your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, because you go into so many details beyond the Bible. You get a clear picture on what's going on based on other sources that kind of fill in the picture that you don't really get with the Bible. There is nothing in the Bible that isn't supposed to be there. Everything's there for a reason. But it's nice to get this outlook from different writings and kind of fill in the picture that you don't. Well, that's that's one thing that I wanted to do. And I, I, and I wanted to bring credibility to the genre of Nephilim and, and do research that would bring credibility. But as I got into the further research and all of these secret societies and, and their agendas and the history of them is, is I wanted that whether or not it was a secret society, it was another religion, it was a historian, I wanted them to utilize their own words. I wanted them to tell through my book what they believe happened, what they actually believe in, and what they believe will happen and what they're trying to do. In doing that, what it did for me was is it told the same story as everything that's written from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. But from their perspective. And so I, I measure everything in the book against a Christian perspective um, and balance it against what's written in the Bible. But it's just amazing that, and it doesn't matter what culture, it's, this, it's the same story all the way through history to the end time. The book, again, is called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy by Gary Wayne. It's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble's. I highly, highly recommend that everyone go out and pick up a copy. Uh, there's something for everyone in this book. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, the fallen angels were talked about as being the watchers. And that term is thrown around a lot, the watchers. They were the watchers. What's interesting in the alien phenomenon is they're also called the watchers. What is your take on what's going on in the world today regarding aliens? I mean... I know some people listening might blow it off and go, well, that doesn't exist, but there is more and more and more videos coming out. There is more and more witnesses coming out, and the witnesses all have the same 
anecdotal story about what happened to them, but it ties in a lot with what originally happened pre-flood. What's your take on aliens today? What's your take on what's going on? I spend a little bit of time in the book about aliens. I didn't, I didn't want, it's such a large genre in itself that I didn't want it to go down this rabbit trail that was going to uh, sort of be in a completely different direction. But I, I could not discount the uh, connections uh, between the alien mythos and uh, uh, the Nephilim mythos. And so if we look at what's going on today, there were just, way 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 too many um stories encounters focus on it and so you have to say something's going on either it's contrived or there's uh, legitimate aliens and i would note that even the vatican recognizes that aliens are likely to exist and there's a lot of speculation that this month uh, that uh, francis is actually going to speak to that but they have a department set up uh, where they uh, track this information and they believe the size of the universe and everything else that aliens kind of have to exist what is for sure i think is is that it's leading us to a revelation where the aliens are going to be introduced to us i think all of this is whether it's and again we see so much of it in uh, entertainment and literature that i think it's preparing us for this uh, this day where we uh, find out that we're not uh, the only ones in the universe and we're going to be welcomed into this uh, table of galactic species, sort of what you saw in the Babylon 5 series or Star Trek or any of the science fiction ones where not only are we part of a larger organization, but there's world government. And in all of these science fiction shows that portray what I believe is coming from these secret societies to give us for propaganda is, is the religion. Because uh, it's, it's the religion that they believe in that's always part of this. It's that new age type of religion. So that's always a key part of it. There's some other connections, though, with, uh, with my book in the Aliens that um, maybe, I, maybe I ought to touch on because this will be part of the end day delusion that we get and part of the rebellion um, that people are deluded into as being part of the freedom fighters of the universe, I believe, to fight against God and his angels, because you're going to again see that we're going to be presented with two sides. And you've, you've heard about earlier in the show about Lucifer being the, the good God uh, trying to free humankind. This is the rebellion that Revelation talks about. And so in Revelation, everybody knows about Armageddon. So there's a day of destiny coming. And so world government hooking up with this other species, uh, whether or not they are uh, legitimate species or they are fallen angels just taking a different form, whether or not they're beings from um, uh, that have been around for a long period of time. I'm not overly concerned about that. What I do recognize is, is they teach the same doctrines and you see that in the entertainment and you see that in anything that's connected to the alien phenomena and they've got this knowledge to give us and they want us to take us to another level and evolve into god so we're talking about all of the same thing i think though that we need to understand this is not a contemporary phenomena i think this phenomena uh particularly with aliens or the greys as they've become the known, has been with us for a long period of time. 
And in the book, I'm going to talk about fairy mythology. And so fairies seem to me have a connection to these little greys, and they also have a direct connection to uh, the Nephilim. And so if you go to original, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that quite as quick as I can. If you go back to the original part of the mythology of fairies, there were four different kinds of fairies. Uh, one is, is the ones that came from other planets and they were shining opalescent beings and they had wings and they were immortal and they had this huge knowledge. The second set of fairies is, is the ones that they created called the earthborn fairies. And so they would be like the Anunnaki or the Nephilim. They were also shining beings and they were also godlike. And then there was two classes of little people. And in the one class of little people, there are three. And inside of that three classifications, there's one called the gray neighbor. Now, what's really interesting about the gray neighbor fairies is, is they have the exact same description as modern grays. They flew in flying machines. They kidnapped people. They did experiments on them. Uh, they were in mythology trying to uh, get new blood into their species to be able to reproduce. So again, all of the same story. The kidnapped victims would be returned and they wouldn't have any memories of this. So I think we've seen these little greys these, uh, throughout our history. And I believe they go back into prehistory of beings that were created I don't think they're the fallen angels. I think they were another being. And again, if you go back to the propaganda literature, look at Tolkien or look at anything that's got little people in ancient history, whether it's Greek mythology or not, they're talking about little people. And so in Tolkien, you've got the elves and you've got the gnolls, you've got all of these different other people. And what's really interesting about Tolkien, it mixes in the ring lord analogy and then you've got the wizards of, of the religion that come from Atlantis and is also part of the King Arthur religion. So you can see that there are so many connections in the alien uh, phenomena to what has happened into history, what is going on in our literature, how the religions are the same. It's really hard not to say that they're not directly connected. Yeah, and I tend to agree. You know, when I was reading that section in your book about the fairies, like I said, it kind of blew my mind. I felt like I was reading an alien book. You know, it's, I mean, we're talking about the same thing we're talking about today. They just had a different name for them. And, but what they did, what they looked like, their behavior really is the same as it was back then. Nothing really has changed. It's new to us because we only live to be 70, 80 years old. So it's kind of a new phenomenon. But if you go back and you look historically, it's kind of disturbing, really. I mean, it really is the same story. You don't think the greys are fallen angels? I don't think so. I mean, they could be because um, fallen angels are known to have shape-shifting capability in the physical realm. I, I, I just don't know why they would take such an odd shape. Well, and that might go back to, and I'm just speculating here, but like how we talked about the seraphims or what you talk about in the book, how yeah. they look like vipers. Uh, and the first time you and I talked about that back on episode 12, it kind of blew my mind a little bit with the Nephilim, you know, having this viper looking look to them, having the elongated skulls, having the just the appearance of them must have been terrifying. But what's interesting is when they pull up a lot of these skulls, you know, in Peru, and they're obviously bigger than what most people describe gray aliens. But I would imagine that it kind of looks the same as 
what an a gray alien skull would look like, really. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it is that elongated look. And you've got those uh, slanted eyes that the Nephilim had. And in a lot of the depictions that we hear about uh, these gray aliens, they've got these glowing eyes. But I think the uh, uh, the seraphim angels were much larger. Well, I know they're much larger. Uh, so that's why I lean a little bit more towards, I mean, also recognizing they shapeshift. Uh, and I'll, and I'll, I'll give a biblical example of that in a second, um, is I think they created other beings in prehistory, and these ones were part of the ones that sur survived. And so, again, you get into fairy lore, and you, you, you learn about these portals, gnolls, fairy gnolls. And uh, these are, and in King Arthur, the ladies of the lake guard these portals to the other world. And part of the alien mythology is, is you know, a lot of these ships come through these portals from another dimension. And so Anne Wynne in, in, the, in the Grail mythology is, is all part of that. And so from a biblical perspective, you don't hear this shape-shifting doctrine, but if you look at the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative, and, and I didn't include this in my book, but the, uh, the three people that go to Abraham uh, who are going to inspect and see what's going on in Sodom, they look like men. So I think if anybody thinks that in the physical world that angels, because those are three angels that were sent and brought the destruction of Sodom, think that angels don't have the ability to take different forms, that to me is probably the most clear aspect that they can take any shape they want in the physical world. Yeah, I never thought about that before. I really never thought, you know, as you and I talked about the seraphim angel, like I said, looking like a viper. And you're right, when the three showed up with Abraham, they looked like men. I just think with the, and we can get off the alien topic here in a little bit, but I just wanted to make one last point. What's interesting to me about the alien phenomenon, especially as I went through and read your book, and uh, we talked about the Nephilim, creating the Nephilim was to mess up the bloodline. They were trying to create freaks of nature. There's more to it, but basically they were creating these other beings and they called them the Nephilim. They were between the angels and the humans, and they created the Nephilim. What's interesting is with a lot of the alien phenomenon, when these people are taken up into these crafts, they're impregnated, or there's tons of anecdotal stories, they're shown a being that was created between the aliens and the human, and it's some hybrid a cross between the greys and these, these um, humans. But they're shown this being that was created. And, you know, as I read through, you know, like in, they talk about in the Bible, in the end of days, it will be just like in the days of Noah. And as you and I talked about, what does that mean? Like the days of Noah, just things will be bad. But there's a lot more to it than just things were bad. And the Nephilim were one of the major causes of the flood and God stepping in because of these freaks of nature that were created. And you just see that same anecdotal story to me, and maybe I'm drawn connecting the dots here and I shouldn't be, but you just see the same narrative being told by these people that was going on in the past with these freaks of nature being created. Yeah, and I think I think you're exactly on point. And when we look at if the end time are going to be like the days of Noah, uh, these were the Nephilim were hybrid beings from uh, the angels and, and human females. And the aliens, uh, we hear about DNA manipulation. 
to create hybrids. It's the same type of idea. So I think we're going to see Nephilim of some form in, in the end days as, as being the powerful potentates of the 10 uh, empire of the, of the last days. But they don't necessarily have to be, you know, 16 feet tall. Uh, they could be the descendants of the Nephilim through the bloodlines, which are actively working to get control of the world. It could be aliens doing DNA manipulation. It could be the with in it, people are familiar with revelations where the key to the abyss is open. That's where the fallen angels were, were locked up until the end time. And they're going to be released in the end time. They may create new Nephilim. So there's lots of different and, and with our own technology with gene manipulation and, and understanding of DNA and, and electronic parts and, and this whole transhumanism thing that we're seeing that's really popular today. We're, we have the ability to create our own type of Nephilim. And I'll go into the book. It's called The New Man Concept. And this, again, this idea has been around forever that, they, that the belief system of the secret societies is, is to evolve into a higher level of human that's godlike. And so it, it, it plays into that belief system. And if we go back just not that long ago, less than a hundred years, there was a significant movement within theosophy that it, it was very popular in North America and Europe. And they were playing with uh, genetics themselves only just through bloodlines to create the super race. And they were, eliminating people that they thought were in, inferior in that belief system. And so this new man thing that the Nazis came up, came right out of that belief system, right out of the same organizations and funded by all of these organizations and, and, and people that we've been talking about earlier. And they were trying to implement the Nazis a thousand year reign that would emulate a thousand years of uh, that's in Revelation, because uh, Reich, the Third Reich, stands for a thousand-year reign. This, this again, is 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 not a coincidence. It's what they've been trying to do right from the beginning. That's why I have a whole chapter devoted to them in in, in my book, because Hitler looked at himself as a messianic figure, and he did a Holocaust with the Jews, similar to what's going to happen in the end time. If you want to learn about the end time. Learn about the religion that took over Germany and the Nazi movement, totally occultic, and the destruction that came with it in every aspect. We will see this replayed in the end time. Going back to what you were just saying about the Third Reich and things that were going on pre-flood with the Nephilim running the world, everything was done through the Nephilim. The food, money, power, everything was done through the Nephilim. And Noah seemed like to be the only guy running around that wouldn't buy into this one world view government or, uh, you know, all the things that were going on at that time. He wouldn't buy into it. And I, I just had a conversation with someone the other day and we were talking about the mark of the beast, what uh, Revelation talks about. And really, what does that mean, the mark of the beast? But I was watching this thing uh, on the Internet the other day that they're doing over in Europe where they're implanting, implanting chips into your wrist. And everything will be done through that chip. You're banking. You can get into work. You're going to be able to start your car. Everything's going to be done with this chip. All your information is mm -hmm. on this chip. They can track you around the globe, wherever you're at with this chip. The technology they had back in pre-flood, I'm sure, is way beyond anything we'd comprehend. 
but I think we're getting to the point today where we're getting kind of close. It shows you how hard it's going to be. Yes. If you don't have something like that, how are you going to buy your food? I agree. How are you going to get into work? How are you going to drive your car? You know, everything's going to be done. You can't. Yeah, exactly. You can't. You'll you'll starve to death, and and they'll track you down. And of course, uh, if you don't take the uh, the chip, uh, they're going to behead you. At least according to Revelations. There's so many things I could sit and talk to you about in the book. There's yeah. so much information. I mean, we we could do a show every day on this for the next year. There's that much information in the book. Yeah, you could take a few chapters at a time and just talk forever on them. I wanted to comment a little bit on that uh, chip a little bit. Um, you know, when they scan that and it comes up, it comes up in a barcode, similar to a barcode that is uh, on all products that are sold. And I don't know whether anybody's ever talked to you about that. There's numbers that are on those barcodes. There's three sets of those numbers that they use to, to do these codings. And so you'll see a couple different forms of UPC codes out there. One will have two sets of numbers uh, and one will just be one set of numbers as they, as they put them on product. But in the second set of, of the three sets of numbers with correlation uh, barcode lines is, is uh, a number six, of course, uh, and it's a straight parallel line. And if you look on any barcode, uh, you will see there are three barcodes um, that are never numbered. And typically they are in the uh, on both ends and in the middle. And on the two-set one, it's easier to see because that middle one will come straight through and it's a little bit longer. And same with the two on the end, they'll be identical to that. And uh, that number is six. So you've got three sixes that are never numbered on the UPC code. And they're using that on these chips. And the banking system has, uh, uh, who runs the smart chips are using the same type of system. And uh, they've already concluded that the only way they can get security in the credit card system and, and uh, get rid of all of the corruption and the illegal use of it is, is to put a chip in your right hand and your forehead. Uh, the only thing preventing uh, them on implementing that is, is the acceptability of it. And so... You're going to continue to see more and more of this type of technology used on the fringes so that at some point in time, people will say, yes, this makes sense. You know, what's weird is with the government and with the secret societies, whenever they want to implement something, kind of like how I talked about the Rothschild family. And I and I don't I got to be careful with saying 9-11 was an inside job because people died. So you, you kind of got to yeah. walk a fine line with that. But whenever they want to implement something. They usually scare the public or in some way force the public to move into that direction. You know, like going into Afghanistan and Iraq. If 9-11, in order to control those world banks, that the banking system, the Rothschild family, that they didn't have control over, there had to be a reason to go in and invade those countries and take that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so it makes you really stop and, and wonder about a lot of things. Yes. Again, I'm not... Not that we can prove it, um, but also follow follow the money on on this thing as well. Um, so if you look at uh, at that point in time, the U.S. was in surplus and they weren't borrowing money. And all of a sudden, now you create these wars and you need money uh, and you go into into debt, which is you know has not stopped. And and the bankers are just absolutely thrilled about that. Well, and it's just like going back to the chip thing you were saying. 
you know, we've moved to the point to where no one carries cash. We all carry cards. Um, yeah. And they're going to use some excuse like fraud or get rid of corruption. Or, yeah. uh, and most people will buy into it. You know, the masses will buy into stuff. Well, and then the other thing that they can do is, is once they have everything sort of in electronic transactions, and that's the only way it can happen, is they can take a tribute off of every transaction, like a value-added tax. Yeah, and I never thought about that. <laughs> I never, and with all the talk about uh, reforming the tax system, so they'll take a tribute once they once everything is 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 sort of working the way that they want with world government. They introduce the cashless society, then they're going to get paid for that. There's a huge parallel between pre-flood and what's going on today. Huge parallel. And if you open your eyes and you look into a lot of these different phenomena going on around the world, it's it, like I said, it'll blow your mind because if you do your research, go back, look at what was going on pre-flood, look at what's going on today, kind of the same thing is going on. And all other religions of the world predict uh, a Messiah coming. Uh, we're the only uh, religion as Christians to believe our Messiah has come and he's coming again. All of them believe that this Messiah, whether it's the Mahdi in Fascist Islam um, or any of the other ones, Lord Maitreya from Eastern religions, uh, will come in the end time and there will be an apocalypse by fire. And in these belief systems, we are in the age of Aquarius. And there was all of this 2012 scare stuff. Um, it's true that in their belief system that uh, an apocalypse by fire will come in the age of Aquarius, but an age is 2,320 years. So I believe it comes early in the age of Aquarius, but early could be 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. So people really got sort of riled up uh, about misunderstanding what was written in some of those other religions and particularly the, the Mayan and Aztec religion. But understand that. This is, again, this is a common story or narrative in all religions uh, about an apocalypse of fire. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, is if if you go back and you read what the Aztecs wrote, what the Mayans wrote, what all these ancient cultures wrote, they weren't saying the end of the world's coming in 2012. That was misconstrued. What they were saying, it was the ending of an epic in 2012. Yes. Yeah, but there was some warning and I'll have to do a little bit more research on this. There was some warning between 2012 and I think 2015, or I'm sorry, 2016, that they were giving. I'll have to go back and research that before I speak intelligently on it. Yeah, and again, I, I, I certainly uh, would not be surprised at that. I'm, I, I haven't come across that myself, but that lines up a lot with uh, a lot of other religions that uh, will look at you know, a time frame between 2017 and 2037 that um, sort of focus in on a likelihood of the stuff coming together. The book, again, is called The Genesis 6, Conspir uh, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I highly recommend it. I absolutely love the book. Uh, there's so much information, like I said, pre-flood, past the flood to today. And I know we're kind of all over the board on some of the conversations tonight, but Gary goes into details and every chapter is a story within a story within a story. And so, you know, as you go through the chapters, he brings you back and ties it into what you read two chapters ago and kind of gives you uh, uh, more details on what you what he's already showed you. He's, he gives you more details. So it's not just a dump of information all at once. And I absolutely love the book. I highly recommend it to anyone out there listening. Uh, I realize that 
this is mainly a Sasquatch show. As I was telling you, Gary, uh, a lot of people think Sasquatch is a Nephilim, and I tend to disagree with that. But uh, and I and I wanted to show through doing a show like this, and like we did with episode one twelve, what the Nephilim really are and what they were back in the day. How does that apply to to today and the time that we're living in today? And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Well, I want to thank you for uh, bringing me back to the show. Certainly enjoyed the discussion. I hope everybody out there uh, enjoyed it. And there's so much more to the book. Uh, it is written, uh, as you said, uh, stories within stories. And there's 98 chapters so that you can read it and come back and keep going forward. And you can go back to other chapters if you need to go back and, and easily find that information. Um, there's more information for people who are interested on my website, www.genesis6conspiracy.com. That's www.genesis6conspiracy.com. Uh, I've got uh, a little write-up on every chapter uh, in the book on, on site there. There's links to Amazon.com and uh, BarnesandNoble.com to buy a hardcover or softcover uh, or to order a signed copy. There's also a link there to buy the Kindle version. If you're interested in purchasing elsewhere, it's available on most online bookstores uh, like uh, BM or Books A Million or Target or Walmart.com. It's also available through Christian bookstores. Uh, it's distributed through Send the Light Distribution, so it's available through all Christian uh, uh, stores and in soft cover copy uh, around the United States. Yeah, and like I said, you tie in everything. I know we're kind of all over the board on some things, but you go into way more details than what we talked about tonight. But you go from the Nephilim to secret societies to things going, you know, different families, world bloodlines to things going on today, and you lay it out in a very chronological order, and you touch on different phenomenons going on. So, I mean, there really is something for everyone in this book, and I highly recommend it. Thank you. And and again, that's one of the things I want to do was to connect more dots than have ever been connected before in this genre and bring more information about it and new information about it. Um, and I think uh, from the feedback I'm getting from the readers is most people are quite surprised, uh, A, at the size of the book and B, at how much information is in there and how much just keeps coming at them. And most of it's new. The book, again, is called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy by Gary Wayne. Great book. Thank you, Gary, for coming back to the show. And I want to thank the audience, too, for allowing me to go off topic. I just had to have Gary back to do a follow-up conversation on some of the topics we didn't get to talk about in his book the first time around. Uh, if you missed it, again, it's episode 112, The Nephilim Conspiracy. Next week, we return to Sasquatch, what everyone out there loves. I was contacted by a law enforcement gentleman who had a kind of a scary encounter and I'm working on getting him on the show. Uh, I will give you an update on the blog on the website. And again, if you've had a Sasquatch encounter and you'd like to be on the show, email me. My email address is Wes at SasquatchChronicles.com. If you get a chance, check out the website, SasquatchChronicles.com. Have a great night and I will see you next time. No.
USA goes above and beyond. I was hit by a tire in the front end of my car and did a substantial amount of damage. I could not believe how fast everything was taken care of. USA was amazing. See how much you could save with USAA. Members paid for their participation.